What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your happy mind. Notice what I did there again, happy mind. Look, if you're into happiness, if you're trying to find happiness, if you're struggling with happiness, if you're a coach, a teacher, a leader, you cannot miss this episode. I am so glad you are here for what I will instantly skyrocket to the top of my favorites list. This episode, simply, we spend almost the entire time talking about what is happiness, what it means, how to set goals, how to achieve true happiness, all types of great content. And look, in a time where a lot of people are struggling, this is a message of hope. It's a message of action. It's a lifeline. So please feel free to share this, post it, tell a friend, send it to somebody. It could make all the difference. This week on the show, we are talking to Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. He is a best-selling author and a lecturer. In fact, he taught two of the largest classes at Harvard University. He taught positive psychology as well as the psychology of leadership. Today, Tal consults and lectures around the world to executives and to general public. And specifically, he lectures on the topic of happiness. He also talks about education, innovation, self-esteem, resilience, goal setting, and mindfulness. His books have been translated into more than 25 languages and have appeared on bestseller lists all around the world. Some of those books, by the way, let me highlight for you. One is Choose the Life You Want. Another that jumped out to me is The Pursuit of Perfect, How to Stop Chasing Perfection 
and start living a richer, happier life. Tal is an expert. Trust me, at the end of this episode, you'll know why I say that. And at the end, it's quite likely that you will say, what else? I want to do more. So we have teamed up with Tal and his organization. We don't do this often with our guests. You could probably count on a handful of times. But Tal has created something called the Happiness Studies Academy, where he is the co-founder and chief learning officer. The Happiness Studies Academy leads the happiness revolution by educating leaders who are themselves dedicated to personal, interpersonal, and communal flourishing. It includes lectures. It is a one-year process or journey to not only increase your own happiness, but learn how to carry it forward. Now, given that it's one year long and it is a full journey and you go through an accreditation process, which gives you the certificate in happiness studies, it's not cheap. It is $3,900. However, uh, Tal and his team have given us a link and a discount code, which will get you 10% off. So we will put that link at smartpeoplepodcast.com on Tal's episode. We'll also send it out in a newsletter. uh, So go ahead and sign up for that. Again, we don't do this often. It's just this is content I believe in so much. I'm a certified coach. I paid over $10,000 to go through a six-month process, and I'm a believer in if this is your thing, if this is your world, if you lead people, if you are trying to change the world, then maybe this is worth a shot. So again, head to smartpeoplepodcast.com, check out Tal's episode. We will put our special link as well as the 10% discount code. So aside from that, as I mentioned, share this episode far and wide. I think it's an excellent one. Let's get into our interview with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar as we talk about the science of happiness and how to achieve it. Enjoy. All right. Well, Tal, first, I just want to say thanks so much for joining us. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Great. I'm too, Chris. Thank you for having me. There's so many areas I could go. I want to start here. I like to hook people early on. One of the big areas you cover is happiness. And I would just like to start with this. Do you think happiness is one of the top things to strive for in life? Um, I'd say more than that. I think it's the top thing that we strive for in life. And uh, in a sense, whether we like it or not. So, um, It's embedded in our nature to strive for happiness. And again, happiness could be uh, uh, avoiding uh, pain and and looking for pleasure, or it could be something which is more complex than that, including a sense of meaning and purpose in life. Um, But fundamentally, part of our nature is to strive to be happy. And everything else that we do um, gears itself towards that. So even when people say, well, I want to, to make money. Well, why do you want money? It's so that I can become happier ultimately. Or relationships, why do we want relationships? Well, because we believe that they will make us happier. So everything that we do, literally everything that we do, aims towards the highest end, in the words of Aristotle, which is happiness. With that in mind, given that that is, and I I tend to agree, it's our number one aim. Do you think we're bad at determining what will make us happy and actually working towards that? Or do you think... We've honed it, and it's a skill we're actually fairly good at. Yeah, unfortunately, we're not too good at it. And when I say we, mostly in the West. So in the West, there is a pervasive belief that the path to happiness 
comes through success. So if uh, I get into this uh, top school or if I get this great job or if I make so much money and I have this house, then I will be happy. Or if I get so many accolades and, you know, make it uh, in the um, in, in the court of public opinion. Uh, whereas, um, yes, you know, it feels good to, to succeed. It feels good to, to excel. But attaining goals only, only leads to a temporary high, not to deep or lasting happiness. Well, I want to get into that deep and lasting happiness because obviously that's what I think many of us are aspiring for. And I hadn't thought about this prior to, but I'm just going to jump straight into the deep end. Then we'll get into your background while I have you on kind of selfishly. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people listening will understand this. Um, I've spent the literally the last 15 years with an end goal in mind. It was to wake up every day and not dislike what I was going to do and maybe enjoy what I'm going to do. I wanted to live with, have some land, a nice house, my family, my kids, health, all these things. As of a few months ago, at least from what I can tell, I've reached this place that I have sought for my entire adult life. And I know that alone is, is I feel lucky. I feel truly lucky. And I also feel like I've worked for it. Here's the thing I want to ask you about. For the first time in my life, I really don't feel the need to strive, to push, to grind. And it feels weird. Like I, I almost don't know what to do. I mean, I'm very content, but the highs and lows have been very muted. Is this something you have encountered a lot? Do you talk about this? Do you know what goes on when people seemingly reach what they are striving for? So here is the thing. You know, we, uh, we all have uh, the ideal picture of our life or the ideal picture of our future life. And um, we really believe that when we get there, then we will be happy. And um, when we get there, we are happy. The thing, though, is that it is unlikely, unlikely to last. And uh, Chris, you know, I don't know your particular situation, but let me talk just in uh, general terms and, and give an example, a very common example in our culture, which is extreme. But hopefully we can um, we can discuss that example in the context of, of your life. So. Think about a person who their entire childhood and early adulthood want to become a, a rock star or a movie star. And um, they're unhappy or they're not content, uh, but they always know that once they make it, once they get there, then they'll be happy. Once they get the, um, you know, reach the peak of becoming a rock star or a movie star. And they work and they strive and eventually they make it. And when they make it, they are ecstatic, happier than they'd ever been before. Uh, for a while, and let's say a month goes by or a year goes by and their unhappiness returns or their lack of contentment returns. And then what happens? They feel even worse than they did before because at least at the beginning they had the or striving for their goal they had the belief that once they make it then they'll be happy but now they've made it they have all the uh the money that they want all the accolades that they want the men or women that they want um they've really made it but they're still unhappy and then they look for the answer outside 
of their lives, because after all, it seems like this life can't provide them what they were looking for. And what do they go for? Very often they go for uh, alcohol or drugs mm-hmm. or suicide, because these are the ways for them to exit their lives. So mm-hmm. we see this. This is why we see so many uh, celebrities, so many famous, successful uh, people uh, who are miserable, who are uh, on 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 drugs or alcohol or rehab um, or committing suicide at a, at a young age because they thought they had the formula, but uh, apparently they didn't. And, uh, you know, the difference between sadness and depression is that depression is sadness without hope. Depression mm. is sadness without hope, and they no longer have the hope. And, and that's why they are where they are. Now, so this is a very general um, uh, occurrence that, that we see among, among famous people. Now, why are some stories different than others? Why, presumably, Chris, your story is different than, than their story? I think one of it, again, I, I don't know how old you are, Chris, but I'm assuming you're not 21. Nope. Uh, 30-something. 30 37, okay. I think. All right. So, um, <laughs> you know, when, when, when we find success and accolades and prestige at a very young age, um, we're not yet mature enough to be able to deal with it. When our dreams come true at a very young age, when we had, um, you know, when we didn't have much time to think about and to imagine our amazing future, then we're not ready for it. And then we experience the extreme high followed by an extreme low. Whereas if, uh, you know, success, and again, and I define success as fulfilling our dreams, whether it's having, you know, a quiet home in the, in, 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 in the suburbs or whether it is becoming a, a famous uh, movie star. When our picture of success is realized later on, we can handle it better. We mm-hmm. take it in proportion and we realize what is truly important. And the important thing is that, presumably for you, Chris, you're able to do what you really love to do. As opposed to success equals every man, woman wanting me and me making a lot of money so that I can buy a bigger house or yacht. Mm. In other words, where is our focus when we attain our success on material wealth or on emotional wealth, on money or what I've come to call life's ultimate currency, which is happiness? The reason that there's a million reasons that resonates and people that know my story will understand it. The thing that's catching me is I've always looked at happiness as a state of being that is determined by an emotion. Like I've looked at happiness as a feeling. So um, if, if I wake up and I feel happy, I don't necessarily worry why that is. I would just be like, well, this is a it's like the compass telling me I'm on the right path. How do you define it? Is, or is it fair to say happiness really is just an emotion? Well, part of happiness is uh, an emotion. However, um, the way I define it, and again, how you define it is, is, of course, something that is personal. You know, many people say happiness is more like uh, beauty, uh, difficult to define, but you know it when you see it or you know it when you experience it. So the definition that I work with and which I found most helpful for me and for for many of my students, not all, is um, happiness comprising uh, five elements. One of the elements is emotional well-being, for sure. The other elements are spiritual well-being, which means uh, having a sense of meaning and purpose. 
uh, which means uh, spirituality in the sense of being present, uh, mindful. So that's where we experience spiritual well-being. Then there, it's physical well-being. You know, happiness is contingent on uh, on um, uh, physical exercise, uh, nutrition, rest, sleep. You know, these are important for happiness. Uh, then there is intellectual well-being. And intellectual well-being is about uh, asking questions. You know, there's research showing that people who are lifelong learners who constantly ask questions uh, are not just happier, they also live longer. Then there is also relational, interpersonal well-being. A number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. So it's these five elements, spiritual well-being, physical well-being, intellectual, relational, and emotional well-being. These make up happiness. Hmm. Now, the the interesting thing about what you were saying, uh, Chris, is that for you, emotions are the... um, the printout, so to speak, the feedback. Right. And and they are. Because if I wake up uh, feeling uh, sad or, or angry, then, well, there must be something that I'm not doing right. What am I not doing right? Well, maybe it's um, uh, I'm not sleeping enough. Or maybe it has to do with me uh, having lost my sense of meaning and purpose at work. So emotions are connect- are connected to every one of the other elements. They're the printout and they tell us where we are. A good feedback mechanism. I love that. I love that for this reason. As you were talking about it, I was I was I was thinking, okay, but I got this, right? Because you were going, well, the physical. And in my head I'm thinking, yes, but if I physically don't feel good, then emotionally I won't be happy. But that's essentially what you were saying. I like the analogy of the printout. You know, for a long time, and I'm sure you use this language when you go into organizations, we call those lagging indicators. So the emotion is lagging. But the reason I think it's so important to identify that, and I'm sure we'll get into this as we talk about mindfulness, if I'm only focused on the lagging and I'm unaware of the leading indicators, the things causing that, then I might place too much emphasis on the emotion and not enough emphasis or maybe no solution orientation on what's causing that emotion. Is that fair? That is a very important uh, insight, Chris. You know, the, the way I understand happiness is as a system. And the system has five elements. One element is the emotional. The other elements are the spiritual, physical, intellectual, and relational. Now, in a system, what's important to recognize about a system is that everything is interconnected. In other words, one part of the system affects all others and and in turn is affected by all others. Now, why is it important to understand whether it's an organization or a nation or a person as a system? Because you understand where the points are that you can intervene and bring about change. In other words, what are the leverage points? Now, for example, if I'm feeling sad or upset, I can ask myself, what's the leverage point to impact that sadness? Now, part of it can just be to accept and embrace the sadness. And that could be good enough or do the work. On the other hand, it could also be, well, I'm not exercising. I'm not moving enough. And I should. And that is my leverage point. So by understanding happiness as a system, then uh, we can better understand the interconnectedness within the system and then also understand where the leverage points are to affect change. 
And by the way, you can extend this also to an entire organization. You know, if um, profits and losses, you know, this is an indicator. It's part of the system. What is leading to the fact that I'm making profits and maybe could make more or I'm losing? And how can I uh, fix that? Understanding as a system is key, not as symptomatic, but as systematic approach. Well, I'm hooked. I'm in. Okay. You got me. I'm buying every book. I'm buying it. And here's why. In in all honesty, I feel pretty well-versed in this stuff, but even I know I'm, I'm also not great at those leading indicators, at that system, at identifying what is it truly that I'm missing. Missing, I don't know. The words here matter a lot, but I don't know if I'm right here. But the point is, and I think one of the things you have probably done so well in your courses, this is why they were so successful at Harvard, and we'll get into that, is I'm assuming you have a way of helping people determine, you know, what it is they're really striving for versus the false narrative that they're striving for. You know, we talk about that a lot on the podcast. I'm a big believer that if we don't ask ourselves, what do we want? We will naturally just do what society or our family or our friends uh, ask us to do. Right. And, And it might be subconscious, but I've done that. And I know a lot of people say it's money or status or title. So I just, I, this could take all the time in the world. I'd like to ask, do you have any quick recommendations or some thoughts that might help us all on those determining the correct leading indicators? How do we ask ourselves if we are not feeling the way we want to feel, what's wrong and how do I fix it? You know, in, um, in all my courses, my focus is very much on research. So, you know, this is, uh, this is what distinguishes the science of happiness from, uh, from new age or, uh, or some self-help approaches. However, as much as my focus is on research, even more so, it is on me-search. And it is through me-search that we can gain insight and understanding into the kind of life that we want to lead. Yes, of course, we can go to research and, 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 and uh, learn about the importance of finding a sense of meaning and purpose in life. However, the research won't tell us what our meaning and purpose in life is. And for that, we need me-search. Now, how do you me-search? One is through conversation, you know, talking about people, to- talking about this with people you trust, where you feel you can be, you can be open, people who are on your side. Um, can help a great deal. Keeping a journal. There's a lot of research um, which uh, started back in the 1960s and then still happening today on the value of uh, journaling. And I'll just give you a a quick example. So this is Jamie Pennybaker. He's a professor, University of Texas, and uh, he published back in 1997 a wonderful book based on his work called Opening Up. And what Jamie Pennybaker shows, one of the things that he shows, is the value of writing about painful and difficult experiences. And it turns out that people who write about such experiences, even for um, 80 minutes, so in four sessions of 20 minutes each, they write about the most difficult experiences. These people enjoy higher levels of well-being, lower levels of anxiety, um, better physical health, so it also affects our immune system, and improved relationships. Just by writing about difficult experiences for 
four sessions, 20 minutes each. Now, the interesting thing about it, and this is where it relates to your uh, question, is that one of the things that Jamie Pennybaker found was that the point at which people begin to improve is the point at which their language changes in their journal. And the language changes to words like, now I see that, or I understand that, or it dawned on me. So all these understanding words suddenly come in. In other words, it's through the journaling that they conducted me-search, and that me-search led them to a deeper understanding of where they are and what they're about and where they want to go. So journaling is arguably the most powerful tool that we have in our disposal today for identifying the leverage points, the, um, those, uh, the, the triggers, those, um, the, those points that we can uh, pursue to increase our well-being. I love how you mentioned the language. That, that's literally what I was alluding to a few minutes ago when I couldn't find the words. I think in a topic such as happiness, the words you use matter so much. I mean, you mentioned the research, and I know there is research about the language you use actually has a different chemical component, releases different things, allows you to feel different things. For example, I mean, anybody could try this. You can say, I have to do the laundry or I choose to do the laundry. And the truth is they elicit a different emotional response. So I'm so glad you mentioned that about the language that naturally comes out through journaling. And my assumption, or, or you know what, I'm not even going to make an assumption. What do you think it is about that process of journaling, that language changing, that understanding that leads to uh, better outcomes? No, so here we have to really understand the way our brain works. And um, the, the way our brain works is that uh, we don't know, we can tell the difference between the real thing and the imaginary thing. So for instance, if I look at my hand, which is in front of me right now, certain neurons in my brain will fire. Now, if I close my eyes and imagine my hand in front of me, then the exact same neurons will fire. In other words, the brain doesn't know, detect the difference between the real thing and the imaginary thing. Now, what happens when we use words? Words elicit images. So when I use the word, um, you know, son, I imagine my son. And the emotions associated with, with me um, or with my son are raised. Whether I just said the word and therefore the image comes up or if I see my son right in front of me right now. Now, when I use different words, when I change my language, I'm also changing the images, the pictures in my brain. And given that my brain doesn't know the difference between the imaginary and, and the real, um, these images that are created by my words have a real impact on my real life. So if I say to myself, for example, something like, um, I choose to do the laundry versus I have to do the laundry. All the emotions associated with have to come up. Mm. All the emotions that are, that are raised through I choose come up. In other words, a very different real experience 
ensues just before I ch- just because I changed my language. Let's take a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. I got my first cell phone with one of the big wireless providers mm, 20, 25 years ago, and I've honestly hated my monthly bill ever since. But then I discovered there's another option that could give me the premium service I'm used to at a fraction of the cost. I could cut my wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month and save hundreds of dollars by switching to Mint Mobile. For anyone out there who's looking to save without sacrificing service, switching to Mint Mobile is a no-brainer. For customers that hate their wireless bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. By going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile can pass significant savings on to you. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text plus crazy fast 4G LTE. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile today and get premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/smart. That's mintmobile.com/smart. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/smart. And now back to the episode. Makes so much sense. And I think it's a great starting point in terms of how do we find it? Because I want to talk about this continuum. I'm, I'm dubbing it a continuum. Hopelessness to happiness. And I'm only using that because you mentioned the hopelessness of perhaps the, the rock star who achieved it at 21. My first question, given all of your knowledge on this, how is it possible that somebody achieves their goals, right? So it fulfills their dreams, yet reaches a level of hopelessness. Is it that their dreams were incorrect or is it just that they feel there's nothing left to work for? Yeah, it's not so much that the dreams were incorrect. You know, dreams are dreams. It's more about their um, understanding of what happiness is, is incorrect, so if understanding happiness as the fulfillment of my dreams, that will inevitably lead to unhappiness, especially when the dreams are, are attained. Whereas if I understand that dreams are important, however, they're just part of a larger uh, picture. They're just part of happiness. And the other parts are the journey on my way to the dream that has to be meaningful and and enjoyable and then relationships that I cultivate as I pursue my dream and that will also remain there once my dream is attained. If I understand that to be, and if I understand the importance of exercising before and after I, I attained my dream, because that is an important part of a happy life, um, then dreams can play a constructive and an important part in, in, in the happiness formula. However, if I see them as the end all, as many people do, you know, I can't, you know, tell you how many uh, students at Harvard are unhappy. Why? Because they believe that once I get into Harvard, then I'll be happy. Mm. That, you know, that's wrong. That's just like saying, you know, once I, you know, become a, you know, a rock star or, or, or a professional athlete or wealthy or whatever goal, again, fill in the blank. 
then I'll be happy. That's wrong formula. And unfortunately, it's a dominant or the dominant formula for happiness in our culture. Yeah, you mentioned the West. And I want to touch on that a little bit. Maybe this has to do with West versus East or different philosophies. But I think what's still tough to me is you mentioned the formula, right? So how do we know? I get a lot of these emails. I talk to a lot of people about career. It can become dicey when we say, this is what I want, right? I want to have this kind of job. I want to have this kind of impact. I want to make this kind of money because how do we know that that is what we actually want? We, or is this another instance of that incorrect formula? You know, so if you have a 15 year old who comes up to you and says, what I really want is to get to Harvard, right? Seems like a good goal. Seems like a good dream. Great. How do we know that they're not setting out on the wrong path or is it that can be part of it, but we have to make sure we look further. Where, where do we look from there? Yeah, the important question to ask is why? So why is it important for you to get to Harvard? Now, if the answer is because if I get into Harvard, then I'll also be uh, recruited by top companies and get a good job, and then I'll make a lot of money, and then I can live where I want to live, well, then you're, this is a prescription for unhappiness. However, if the answer is, well, I want to get into Harvard because, uh, you know, Professor Ellen Langer teaches there and I read her book and I just want to be her students. I'm, I'm so fascinated by, by her work. Uh, Ellen Langer, by the way, was my advisor. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, then that, that's a good reason to want to attain a particular goal. In other words, the goal has to have meaning beyond the uh, uh, the success or the prestige or other quantifiable um, benefits that it will yield. What are the day-to-day benefits? Well, if the day-to-day benefit, I'll get to work with Alan Langer, or I will get to interact with uh, interesting students, or something like that, then, um, then that could be a good reason. And that could lead to more happiness. Again, not the end all, and that's not the answer to the question, because you could, if you don't get in, you can be very happy going elsewhere and finding things that you enjoy doing and researching and working with faculty elsewhere. So there is no just one size fit all, or rather there is no just one dream that will make you happy. There are many paths to happiness. And that's another part that we need to, uh, another idea that we need to internalize If um, very, very often people stake everything into one goal, again, getting into a particular university or getting a particular job or uh, or um, or uh, getting together with one partner whom we think is the perfect partner uh, for us. Um, And that's just not the case. There are there are many, many doors to happiness. Man, this is so it's so complex. It's one of those topics where I, I mean, this almost never happens. I almost struggle to try to be concise so that we can get it into the time we have. I'm going to try this. Okay. Let's, here's where I struggle. Uh, let's go back to this Harvard example. Is it kind of saying that the goal makes sense if the purpose of the goal has utility in and of itself, meaning utility is not even a good word, but 
you know, you go to Harvard because you want to learn from these people. And the problem that I still wonder is, let's say you say, I want to go to Harvard so I get a good job so I can live in a certain place. Well, isn't there some value in saying, I want to live in this place. I want this type of lifestyle. I'm, I'm still struggling with that. Yes. So the, the key is to bring together two seemingly contradictory options. The first option is future benefit. The second option is present benefit. If I say I want to get into Harvard so that I can have a great job later, and then once I graduate and I have a great job, I want to create a great job so that mm. I can uh, have a big house. And I want a big house so that, you know, people will look at me. And like, then if I continuously postpone my enjoyment to the next uh, attainment, if my goal is for the sole purpose of reaching the next goal after that, that's a problem. Whereas if I say, yeah, I want this goal. I want to live in, in a big house. And the way I'm going to get it is by doing things that I'm really passionate about. You know, I really love working in the bank or as a teacher or as a, as, as, as a, as a doctor or whatever it is. And I really do enjoy it. In other words, I enjoy the journey on a way to a destination that I deem worthy. That is happiness. Yeah. But if it's only about attaining the next goal and then the next and the next, well, then I'm living in the future, not in the present. And isn't it true that living in the future is one of the quickest ways to unhappiness? Um, yes and more. Okay. So, you know, the, the, there are essentially two schools of thought. The one school of thought says um, it's all about the future and it's all about attaining goals and you'll be happy when you attain your goals, those milestones, those objectives. And this, we can say, is very much associated with the Western way of thinking. Then there is another school that said, no, you've got it all wrong. I mean, look at how much unhappiness there is uh, in the West. Look at so many unhappy, successful people. That simply points to the, to the fact that your model is wrong and the right model is focusing on the present. Not the future, but the present. Being the here and now. The power of now. And um, this is mostly associated with the East. So then we have these two oppo seemingly opposing schools. One says happiness is about future. One says happiness is about the present. Where is the answer? The answer is in the synthesis. Not a compromise, but a synthesis of the two models. If I can find a goal, then that is healthy because we are goal-oriented by our very nature. Mm -hmm. One of the things that distinguishes... Uh, human beings from most animals. We're not we, we are about finding a sense of meaning and purpose in a future dream, goal, objective. So that's part of our nature. At the same time, um, we're also, we also have the capacity to be present in the here and now. Now, how do you synthesize the two? You have a goal, an objective, something that is meaningful, that is important to you. And... As you have that goal and you know where you're going, you let go of it and you mm -hmm. focus on the present, on the journey. You have a destination and once the destination is there in your mind set, you just let go of it and enjoy the present each step of the way. So for instance, 
You know, if I woke up every morning and said, I don't know what I'm going to do today, I don't really have a goal, it would be very difficult for me to be present. But if I know that I have a book that I'm working on now, that's my future goal in, you know, specifically April 27th, 2021, my book is going to be published. So I have a future goal. Now I can let go of it. And now I can focus every day when I wake up on my three hours of writing. And when I focus on my three hours of writing, I'm in the here and now. I'm enjoying the journey. And yet the destination is still there. This is about synthesizing present and future benefits. Wow. Goosebumps. Goosebumps. So good. Like, so good. It reminds me of Flow, which is my favorite book Mm -hmm. ever. But tying it all in and that word synthesis of essentially, and I, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with looking, where do you want to be 10, 20 years? Because I was just talking to somebody the other day about the, we were kind of debating, if you will, the destructive power of future focus. And they said, well, if you don't future focus at all, and you only focus on what you want to do now, and Chris, what you want to do now is play golf. In 20 years, you might be homeless. So <laughs> that's not a great way to live. And, and so I think there is some value there. But then saying, okay, 20 years, five years, one year, are those goals exciting? Are they who I really am? How do I get there? And then, and then trusting that you set that path and then focusing on the day-to-day. It seems like a perfect formula. You know, let, let me extend this formula also to uh, relationships. You know, so there are uh, hedonic relationships where you just, okay, I'm having a great time now and, and it's all fantastic and you're just thinking about the present. And these are enjoyable, they're fun, they're not sustainable. On the other hand, there are relationships where you would say, well, we're about, you know, b- b- building a family together, you know, building a home together. Um, but the journey is not fun. You know, these aren't happy relationships. The happy relationships are ones where you have a future goal or you're building something together and Overall, again, there's no perfect relationship, but overall, you're enjoying spending time together in the present. So whether we're talking about love, whether we're talking about work, whether we're talking about any pursuit, being able to synthesize present and future, that is the key to happiness. And I just want to highlight, we were talking a little bit about, you know, the seven habits and things like that. One thing that's always stuck with me, and you use this word synthesis. Uh, they, they, he, Dr. Covey used the word synergize. And I'll never forget the first time I learned this. And it's that we think that compromise is the goal, but in any compromise, you're both giving something up and in synergy. And what I'm thinking of synthesis, you're actually taking both sides and creating something better than you could have before. And I just find that to be such a, a, important point and also it ties into this so well right you i think a lot of the strife i've seen in my life is saying there has to be a sacrifice for a long time to get to an eventual goal and i mean we didn't go into it that a lot of the listeners know but i've definitely in my professional career experienced that hopelessness all the way up to happiness and the hopelessness was to your point at 22 when I reached exactly where I thought I wanted to be at 22, making six figures, had a brand new $45,000 sports car, right? Was going out to bars, these types of things. It was the worst period of my life. And why? Because the thing I had to do to accomplish those goals 
was something I hated on a day-to-day basis. So although the things it bought and the lifestyle it provided was what I said I wanted, which it wasn't even in the first place, the thing I had to do to get it was awful. And so again, you know, I feel like I've tried to learn this, but what you're saying is 15 years of a journey. And I just want to highlight how important it is to say that end goal is worth it, but how you get there and enjoying getting there and figuring that out is, is, is more important. Let me ask you this, because I'm sure I can read the minds of people listening who say, but Tal, what if I don't yet see the path I'll enjoy to get to that end goal? So let's say I want to make a million dollars, yet as far as I know, the only thing I enjoy is knitting. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm using some ridiculous things here, but like, I feel like that's where a lot of hopelessness comes in. It did for me. When the, the goal I wanted, I didn't see how I could get there with the things I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there are a few issues here. The first thing to ask is, you know, why do you want that million dollars? Um, mm. You know, the, the famous story of, um, you know, the person who their entire life worked so hard so that they could go fishing in retirement, you know, versus the person who just goes fishing. Um, but the, the point here is to really ask, why do I want to make that, that, that kind of money. And if the answer is satisfactory, if you truly want that, then go about and do it in a way that is um, as close to the ideal as possible. You know, having an ideal life is, um, for most people, uh, unattainable. If our ideal is, you know, being in flow all the time, being happy all the time, being motivated and engaged all the time, probably unrealistic. Um, you know, today, I'm, I really am doing what I love to do. You know, I, I, I write about happiness. I teach about happiness. And yet there are mornings when I wake up and, and just want to go back to bed or, or you know, days when I just want to, you know, binge watch, uh, you know, uh, you know my, my favorite comedy series. So there are such days and that's okay. You know, this very important work by uh, uh, Anders Ericsson from Florida and he has a, a terrific book called Peak. And it's about peak performance, about experts, about the best in their field, whether you're talking business people or, or, or athletes or, or scientists. And what's very important to a t- t- very important take home from his book is that, yes, they are passionate. Yes, they love what they do. And they sometimes have to pull themselves up by their bootstrap. Why? Because sometimes intrinsic motivation is just not enough. And that's okay. That's part of life. So understanding, um, having a realistic understanding of what that life could look like is important. And then if you don't find something that gets you closer to your ideal, then continue to experiment. Mm. Try things out. Make mistakes. You know, there is, um, uh, there is, Failure has gotten a bad rep and it's unfortunate because we learn so much from failure. So if you try, you know, and fail, get up and and try again, learn from your failure, take time to reflect on your failure before moving on. Mahatma Gandhi, uh, who by by all standards had, you know, a great um, and successful and meaningful life. Um labeled his uh, or titled his autobiography, My Experiments with Truth. 
Who was that? I, I missed that. Who was that? Mahatma Gandhi. Oh, Gandhi. Okay. Yeah. Um, he didn't, his autobiography is not called my finding of truth or the truth. It's my experiments with truth. Hmm. Um, and that is the way we need to lead our life. We need to experiment. And over time, we come closer and closer to our ideal. We never really reach it, but we get closer and closer to it. And now let's take a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and more. And now Audible is giving members even more with the all-new Plus Catalog. All members have access to the growing Plus Catalog with thousands of select audiobooks, podcasts, Audible originals, guided fitness and meditation programs, sleep tracks for better rest, and more. All of this is included with membership. As an Audible member, you get one credit every month, good for any title in the entire premium selection of bestsellers and new releases, regardless of price, to keep forever. Members also have full access to the Plus catalog and can listen all they want to thousands of included titles. I'm sure you're finding yourself at home with all kinds of time on your hands, and maybe you want to spend that time discovering new things. Well, you're in luck because Audible has plenty of content to entertain, inspire, and inform. And you can start exploring Audible with a free 30-day trial now. Listeners of Smart People Podcast can head over to audible.com smart or text smart to 500-500. That's audible.com smart or text smart to 500-500. Want to let a friend or relative know you're thinking of them? Share the gift of Audible with others so they can be inspired, informed, and entertained. Again, head over to audible.com slash smart or text smart to 500-500. And now back to the episode. Do you think that's intentionally designed by the universe, by evolution, by whatever, that, that we can't attain it because that attainment is, it would all end right there? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting you ask this question now, Chris, because just this morning, I had a, a Zoom call with um, Professor Shai Efrati. Now, Shai Efrati is um, um, he's a medical doctor in the area of aging. And uh, again, a medical doctor, uh, a scientist. And people ask him, so how do you define old age? And his response to it, what he says, he says, you know, people expect me to say, oh, when the hippocampus uh, shrinks to this extent or when the muscles wither to this extent, you know, they expect something physiological from me. And he says, no, here is my definition of, um, of old age. Old age is when you start talking more about the past than about the future. Hmm. In other words, when you are no longer thinking of things that you want to do, things that you want to attend, and again, it doesn't have to be some, you know, uh, you know, uh, a BHAG, big, hairy, and audacious goal. You know, it can be, you know, I want to spend more time with, or I want to do this, but it's still talking about a better future. And when we stop doing it, then again, in his definition, that's when we have aged. That's when we are old. Nothing physiological, 
but rather psychological. Wow. So in a sense, you know, going back to your question, if I feel like I've arrived, like I've nowhere else to go, then by Shai Frati's definition, I've become old. <laughs> I mean, first of all, let's talk about coming full circle. One of the first things I mentioned was I, I feel like I've, I've gotten to where I wanted to go. And I, I feel a sense of contentment. I was just talking to my dad about it. It's a sense of calm, quiet, right? It's finally, I don't have to push the boulder uphill. And it's been harder to motivate myself. And that seems baffling to me. But you have essentially highlighted it for me. It's I, I have spent so much time to get to this exact place that I've envisioned that and I've paused and I've enjoyed it, okay? But it's time for the next chapter. It's time to envision the next portion in a way that feels authentic and exciting and motivating. And I mean, you've just done that for me. I just wanted to say thank you. My pleasure, anytime. Um, but let, let me say something more about the process which I think you uh, went through and actually are going through. Mm -hmm. and, and again, this is not you know Chris process. This is a human natural process which people go through when they're you know thirty seven or forty seven, and very often it is a, a process that we associate with midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. And again, um, it could happen at thirty two or fifty two. But for many people, this is what defines their midlife crisis. And essentially, it's a process where you go from more ex extrinsic to more intrinsic. And, you know, I can describe it because I, I went through it, you know, for, a, for a, a long time, whether consciously or subconsciously. You no, know, my goal was to make it. And making it means, you know, publishing that book and it becoming a bestseller or making so much money or... Uh, or, uh, you know, getting this position or, or, or that. Um, and, and then at a certain age, you know, with, whether we, we actually achieve what we set out to do or not, at a certain age, we, we move away from this uh, desire for, for the extrinsic. It becomes less important. And again, this is what maturity is about. The external becomes more important. But then... Once the external is less important, that leaves a void. Because what is there to motivate me now? What is there to get me out of bed in the morning? Because when my goal was the extrinsic goal, then um, that, um, that motivation was there. Yes. And it's a little bit scary. Yeah. This fear is the fear that defines Midlife crisis, what many people, you know, what am I about? What am I going to do now for, you know, the rest of my life? And how am I going to do it? Because I don't have the motivation to do it. And then what happens naturally, organically, but for that we need patience. It takes time and, and insight. So journaling, understanding, talking about it, reflecting on it. But after a while, if we do go through the, the process then suddenly a new form of motivation emerges. A new form of motivation fills the void that was left behind by the extrinsic, and that is intrinsic. And then I wake up in the morning and I say, you know, I want to do this because it really matters, because I want a better world, 
for myself, for my children, for future generations. Um, this is also a time when we become much more, more expansive in terms of our goals and our objectives because um, we are thinking about, uh, about other people more than, than we did before. And again, just like it's natural for uh, you know, a three-year-old or even a, a 30-year-old to primarily focus on the self, it's more natural for uh, you know, a 50 or a 60-year-old to think about future generations or other people or other cultures, even if they're far away from me. So going through the process from extrinsic accolades, success to intrinsic, what is really meaningful and important for me? What do I want to leave behind? Um, and that becomes a very powerful motivator, which um, we don't need to lose un literally until the day we die. Yeah, I I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, the idea of changing our motivations, thinking about our motivations, but even more so just making sure they are, I've always said they're true motivations. Just one of the biggest things is questioning even your own motivations to making sure they are yours. Um, there's so many things, Tal, and I know we're, we're coming up on time here. Uh, a few things I wanted to highlight. One, you mentioned Anders Ericsson. And just for those listening who are, are finding this conversation as fascinating as I am, I wanted you to know we interviewed Anders. Uh, it's episode 238, if you want to go check that out. Another incredible thinker. Second, I just wanted to touch on, you have a number of books. Uh, there's a few that jumped out to me and I'll let you kind of discuss, but one that, that has hit me and I just like your general thoughts so you can tease it a little bit, but, but drop a minute of knowledge is The Pursuit of Perfect, How to Stop Chasing Perfection and Start Living a Richer, Happier Life. Tell me a little bit about the thesis of that book or, or the perhaps destructive nature of perfectionism. Yeah, you know, when uh, psychologists talk about perfectionism, they're talking about two types of perfectionism, adaptive and maladaptive. Adaptive perfectionism is about being a very responsible uh, dependable, hardworking, um, taking responsibility for what one, one does. And, and this is adaptive perfectionism, and it's healthy. You know, this is why very often in, in job interviews, when people are asked for their weaknesses, they would say, oh, I'm a perfectionist. Um, and that's really a strength in the way that they mean it. But then there is also maladaptive perfectionism. Maladaptive perfectionism is an extreme fear of failure. It's the desire, which is stronger than basically any other desire, to appear to seem perfect in other people's eyes, which leads to a great deal of unhappiness, which leads to defensiveness, which leads to um, uh, an absence of uh, openness and therefore learning. And this form of perfectionism is what I write about. And... Um, while perfectionism has a, you know, a good side, it can motivate us and get us to work harder, it also has a sinister, destructive side. This fear of failure prevents us from learning. One of the mantras that I repeat in the book and I repeat to my kids, my students, and to myself is learn to fail or fail to learn. That's how we learn how to walk. That's how we learn how to shoot a basketball. That's how we learn to be better parents and better partners. It's through failure. 
And if we're open to failure, if we embrace failure rather than reject it, then we're much more likely to learn, to grow, to be happy. Another element of perfectionism, the unhealthy type of perfectionism, is our rejection of painful emotions. Because if I'm striving for the perfect life, that means that it's a life devoid of sadness or envy or anxiety. But striving for that kind of life, for that perfect life, is the, um, the, the destroyer of happiness. Because when I reject painful emotions, these emotions only intensify. Whereas if I embrace painful emotions, if I say to myself, experiencing sadness or anger or envy, these are natural human emotions, then I'm open to them, I embrace them, and they do not overstay their welcome. They leave just as they came in. On that note, I meant to ask you this earlier, and I think it ties in nicely. Is making happiness the goal a destructive way of living? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad we, we, we get to talk about that. So there's uh, very good research by the likes of uh, Iris Moss and others um, showing that people who wake up in the morning and say to themselves, happiness is important for me, or I'm going to be happy, or I want to be happy, and they make this their explicit goal, actually end up less happy. But we have a problem because on the one hand, we're told that happiness is important. You know, we know that beyond happiness being good in and of itself, uh, happy people are also more productive, more creative. They enjoy better relationships. Um, they're healthier. So we're told that happiness is good. But on the other hand, we're, we're, we're told that waking up in the morning and saying, well, I want more happiness. Happiness is important for me. That actually hurts more than helps. So what do we do? Do we... Uh, uh, fool ourselves? Do we say, well, I don't want happiness, wink, wink. Well, I actually do. Mm -hmm. uh, no. What we do is we learn to pursue happiness indirectly. Let me explain this through a metaphor. So let's uh, take the sun. If I right now look at the sun, it's going to hurt my eyes. It's going to cause harm. So what do I do instead? I can look at the sun indirectly. For example, I can break the sunlight into its, uh, into its elements, the colors of the rainbow, and then look, savor, and enjoy the rainbow. Similarly with happiness. Pursuing it directly hurts. But if I break happiness down to its constituents, to its metaphorical colors of the rainbow, then I find spiritual well-being, physical well-being, intellectual, relational, and emotional well-being. And these I can pursue. So if I wake up in the morning and say, okay, physical well-being, I'm going to exercise regularly. Or uh, spiritual well-being, I'm going to identify a sense of meaning and purpose in what I'm doing. Or relational well-being, I'm going to spend extra time with my loved ones. Then I'm pursuing happiness indirectly. In other words, I'm pursuing the metaphorical colors of the rainbow, and then I can enjoy the light. Then I can enjoy higher levels of happiness. I just, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and it came to me because you were talking about a willingness to feel sadness. And I just think with all the discussion on happiness, it's my understanding, and I figured, well, I've got the expert, that, you know, feeling sad is just a natural part of living. It is not the antithesis or the opposite or the the end of happiness, right? It's 
you can't necessarily judge yourself by fleeting emotions, I would imagine. Is that fair? Yes, and even more than that. Sadness, anger, envy, uh, hatred, anxiety, all these emotions are natural. They, they exist whether we like it or not. And if we reject them, then, um, that, that, then we are um, diminishing our ability to feel joy, love, pleasure, and all the all, all other pleasant emotions. So exp- uh, accepting painful emotions, or more generally, accepting unhappiness is a prerequisite for enjoying happiness. Oh, man. I don't know about everyone else, but did you just hear a soundbite? Because I heard a soundbite. That's so good. Tal, you're obviously a wealth of knowledge. If I was listening right now, I'd be like, please don't stop. Uh, but Tal does not have unlimited time. So here's what I want to mention. Um, you have the Happiness Studies Academy. I went on the website. There's a free lecture available. I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about it because unlike most of our guests who have a book, and that's kind of it, and you have books, and I'll mention those, you have an abundance of direct you know, lectures that people can access. Can you tell us about the Happiness Studies Academy, the certificate, uh, what you have going on there? Sure. So um, the Happiness Studies Academy basically comes to address two, um, two needs, two questions. The first is, how can I become happier? The second, how can I help others become happier? And um, it's, um, th- we have a certificate program, which is a year-long program, in which students go through a process, a process through which they work on their own happiness and then serve it forward, help others become happier as well. Everything is evidence-based. We rely on, uh, on the science, whether it's um, positive psychology or neuroscience. We also look at philosophy. And, and we ask, um, how can the greatest, smartest minds um, from history, East and West, can help us lead a more full and fulfilling life and can help us help others do the same. And um, we have students who are uh, coaches and therapists and managers and teachers and parents who want to become better parents and, and people who just want to become happier. And we have a community over 60 countries. And um, for me, it's the this is my sense of meaning and purpose in life. This is why I wake up in the morning to, uh, to be part of the Happiness Studies Academy community. Well, it's apparent. I mean, it comes off, right? The, the energy, the authenticity comes off. Um, and I just want to let everybody know, you know, Tal and his team have been nice enough. So um, we will link to a special link, a Smart People Podcast link um, that provides a 10% discount on the annual tuition. Um, it's something I, I mean, I was just told about this this morning, so I'm going to dig in a lot more because I, I fundamentally believe and enjoy all this. So smartpeoplepodcast.com under Tal's episode will provide the link, the discount code, etc. Also, if you want it directly in email, just sign up for our newsletter. We'll send it out there. Um, and, and go check it out, right? Happinessstudies.academy. Uh, Another thing I just want to mention for everybody is Tal has a number of books. I mentioned a few of them. One that also jumped out to me is Choose the Life You Want. Uh, There's one that seems pretty interesting. It's called Shortcuts to Happiness. Um, And it's not cut. It's shortcuts per se. That's not doing it enough justice, right? It's lessons from your barber. Um, 
anything else you wanted to let those listening know about or, or plug? Because again, I know this is going to resonate and they're going to say what next. So we've mentioned a lot. I just want to give you that chance. Yeah. Just um, one thing, you know, there is a real double standard when it comes to personal development. And what is that double standard that on the one hand, you know, people say, I, I want to learn a musical instrument, or I want to become a, a better athlete, you know, tennis player, golfer. And what they do is they go and study, you know, they may read a book or, uh, or uh, hire a coach, and then they go and practice. So no one would think, okay, I just need to read a book about golf, or I just need to, you know, read the, you know, the, the latest article on playing the violin. And then I become a violinist or, or, a, or a better golfer. They go out and practice. Whereas when it comes to happiness, many people believe that just reading a book or hearing a lecture or, or a podcast um, is enough. And then they'll become happier. Why? Because they understood something that they didn't understand before. They had the aha moment. That's a double standard. It's not enough. We need to then go out and practice. We need to do things to to exercise you know this is why our certificate program is not a one day event or a three day event it's a year long process it's a journey and the journey of happiness is a lifelong journey a journey that ends when life ends i'm so glad you mentioned that because i think intuitively that's one of those things that people know right i mean you're going to those listening they're listening to this podcast they'll pick up a few nuggets but really, I view this as informational, right? Fills the brain. But what do you enjoy about that information? You enjoy the feeling you get when you learn something new and connect disparate thoughts or have creative ideas. This does not directly lead to a ton of action. In fact, I got an email just the other day where somebody said, Chris, I want to say thanks for your podcast. It's motivated me to do X, Y, Z. So it's not that we took every lesson we learned and implemented it. It's the motivation. I mean, that's why people listen, the joy they get, the emotion they get. To Tal's point, if you're sitting here going, I love this, I believe in it, I want to make changes, I feel happier, like it, it takes effort. I wish it was as simple as listening to our podcast, but if it was, we'd have a thousand times more listeners. So um, I, I really appreciate that. Tal, this has been fantastic. I, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. And so again, um, for, for everybody listening, it is the Happiness Studies Academy. Check that out. We will link to it. Tal, I want to say thank you. Uh, I wish you a happy life, and I appreciate your time. Thank you, Chris, and thank you for uh, motivating so many people to take action and to improve their lives. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right, Tal. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. I know Chris mentioned it in the intro and in the interview, but don't forget that listeners of Smart People Podcast can save 10% with the coupon HAPPY when you sign up for the Certificate in Happiness Studies. All right, let's jump into the quick housekeeping. As always, if you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you're looking for free and easy ways to support the show, just head over to wherever you downloaded the podcast and leave us a rating and review. And if you'd ever like to support us monetarily, you can always head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, 
smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got some great interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode.